Have you ever stopped to really think about the importance of names? Maybe how much your name really matters to you? When we encounter someone new, what's the first thing we do? We always introduce ourselves by saying our names. Recent studies show that our names have the potential to actually influence our behavior, our physical appearance, our life choices, and how others perceive us. Our names also tell a story of our culture and where we come from. So why is it so important to use people's names? Some of you may remember a popular show in the 80s, Cheers. (laughs) The theme song we sang along to, at least some of us, every week, making your way in a world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. You'll be glad I didn't sing that, by the way. (laughs) Yes, Cheers was a bar in Boston amongst friends where you could be yourself. And whenever a certain character came in the door, everyone shouted, Norm! Yes! And he took his usual stool. (laughs) According to Dale Carnegie, a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. So hearing your name gives you a sense of identity and belonging. And in this story read today, we will learn the significance placed on Hagar and Ishmael, Sarai and Abram's names. All the way through Genesis 16, Sarah and Abraham are called Sarai and Abram. And their names are actually changed by God later as a sign of God's covenant promise. God's name for Abraham means the father of multitudes. And Sarah means the mother of nations. Now, I'm probably going to get confused because I'm going to talk about Genesis 16 and then 21 where their names are already changed. So I'm going to go ahead and call them Abraham and Sarah. I hope that's okay with you. (laughs) So who is Hagar? Hagar's name means forsaken, flight, a stranger, or one that fears. We will see all of these played out in Hagar's story, which is found in Genesis 16, 1 through 16, and then again in chapter 21. Clearly, Hagar is a woman trapped in difficult circumstances. She was an Egyptian maid, a servant of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Most likely, she was part of Sarah's dowry. Hagar is single, she's poor, she's a slave, she's young, potentially fertile. She couldn't be more opposite than Sarah. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Yet, Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, were childless and reaching a very old age. (laughs) If you have ever longed for a child and had difficulty conceiving, you understand Sarah's heartbreak. It's especially devastating in this culture at this time. 
and it caused great disgrace and pain. Children were a woman's total capital and significance. And then as time passes and still Sarah doesn't have children, now that God has met and promised Abraham a blessing through their descendants, Sarah would have felt she was letting Abraham down and then God down. <laughs> so she comes up with a plan and she decides to take matters into her own hands. Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham to have a child so their line would be preserved. Nowhere in the Bible is polygamy condoned. These relationships in the biblical narrative always, always end in disaster. <laughs> Before this, Abraham has listened to the voice of God. And now he listens to the voice of his wife, Sarah. And he takes Hagar as his second-tier wife. Hagar becomes pregnant, and she begins to feel that finally she has a little power for the very first time in her life. And she treats Sarah with contempt. A child makes her feel like somebody. Hagar was not first in anyone's life. There was no one she could count on, not even the father of her child. First, she was given up as a slave. Second, Sarah, whom Hagar would have served for most of her life and spent most of her time with, gave her up to Abraham as a wife. And then third, when conflict arises, Abraham gives her up too. Her whole life seemed to be a story of what other people wanted. She was Abraham's concubine, a common family arrangement at that time, and yet he and Sarah failed to see Hagar as a whole person. They never called her directly by her name. She is an object to be used as a surrogate for the child they wanted. When Sarah felt her position threatened, she treated Hagar harshly. Possibly she, she was physically, verbally, and emotionally abused. And Hagar ran from this abuse to the wilderness. And now Hagar is in the wilderness, pregnant and alone. She didn't ask to be in this position of isolation and desperation. And I can't help but be reminded of some of our foster youth and our foster children in our community who are alone. Since Hagar is a woman, she has no recourse. Yet this is the exact moment that an angel of the Lord appears to her. This is the first time in the scriptures where angel of the Lord is mentioned. Most biblical scholars actually believe that this angel is a physical manifestation of God. And later, Hagar recognizes him to be the Lord who spoke to her. The very first word from the angel of God's mouth is Hagar. She is called by name in direct opposition to her previous experience. And for the very first time, a covenant blessing is given by God to a woman. How beautiful it must have been for Hagar to hear her name being spoken from the angel of God. Scripture says that Jesus calls us by name. Jesus, describing himself as the good shepherd in John 10, said, The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I love the Lord's amazing compassion communicated in Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. When Zion says, The Lord has abandoned me. My Lord has forgotten me. And he answers, can a woman forget her nursing child, fail to pity the child of her womb? 
Even these may forget, but I won't forget you. Look on my palms, I've inscribed you. Your hand is on, your name is on my hands. So we know from difficult stories in foster care that there are many children who seem to be forgotten or feel abandoned. In Washington State, there are just about 10,000 children in foster care right now. 37% of our youth who experience foster care also experienced homelessness before the age of 17. As Christ followers, we are here to call them lovingly by name, to be that voice that recognizes their amazing worth as God's image bearers and help them feel seen and valued for exactly who they are. Our God pursues into the desert, the dark and difficult places of our lives. Jesus calls me by name, and once he has my attention, God so often starts with questions. The angel of the Lord first asked Hagar questions. If our God who knows everything starts with questions, shouldn't we be better listeners? Where have you come from? And where are you going? The questions aren't just about her situation that moment. They reflect her past and her future. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, these are really good questions to ponder. Where have I come from? How did I get here? Maybe like Hagar, circumstances beyond your control have knocked you off your feet. Or you may be more like Sarah. Some bad decisions of your own have caused those around you a lot of pain and trouble. God meets you in those places of examination. And he doesn't intend to leave us in the wilderness of loss. But then comes the next question. <laughs> Where are you going? Hagar answers truthfully, but not completely. She states she came from Sarah, her mistress, but does not say where she is going. And by focusing only on her past, Hagar confesses that she doesn't have a vision for her future. For Hagar, the directive to go back sure seems harsh. And let me be clear that God never intends for us to live in violent situations. We are never, ever to go back into the arms of someone who abuses us. Yet Hagar would be returning with a new knowledge of who she was and where she was going. She won't return defenseless or with the same status. She will return with a strong promise, a covenant blessing, receiving directly from God. Genesis 16:12 describes Ishmael, the son she would bear, as becoming a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> the connotation being that he'll live a life of fierce independence and untamed strength. And that dialogue that began with a command to return and submit concludes with a revelation about the identity of Ishmael. This provides a prophecy for both mother and son that is anything but meek and dutiful. <laughs> so, now Hagar, not a man or a patriarch, receives God's covenant blessing. I will greatly multiply your descendants, the Lord's angel added, so that they will be too numerous to count. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> God told her that she was to give her son the name Ishmael. Ishmael means God has heard. Every time she called out his name, she would be reminded, God hears. Ishmael, Ishmael. 
God hears. God has heard. For the Lord has heard your painful groans. It doesn't say the Lord has listened to your eloquent prayers. Uh, To that point, there is no suggestion that Hagar prayed. But God has listened to your affliction. God has heard tears as well as prayers. He has heard your suffering. All those exhausted sighs and longings in the night. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. This is a love that can be counted on. A tough love. A love that perseveres and yet is gentle. The love of our Heavenly Father. There must have been times when Hagar said to herself, My people didn't look after me. Abraham didn't look after me. Sarah didn't look after me. But now I have found the one that is there for me. Hagar actually gives God a name. The first one ever in scripture to do this is a woman. Remarkable. El Roy, the God who sees me. By naming God, Hagar announces the personal relationship and witness she now has with God. God hears her cries. God saw her. He cared about Hagar on a personal level. As a socially marginalized woman, her most intimate relationship, it turns out, is with God, and she is transformed by it. The one who sees the forsaken one, the one who knows the strangers, the one who gives courage to the frightened, the one who formed this precious one in her mother's womb, the one who knew her name before the beginning of time saw her, the one who saw Hagar redeemed her story of pain. In the same way that God sees Hagar, he sees us. He is El Roy, the God who sees us when life is good and we are full of faith. He is El Roy, the God who sees us when life is hard and our faith is on shaky ground. He is El Roy, the God who sees us when life is unbearable and we can't see the next step. We feel alone and hopeless. God also sees the 80% of foster children and youth in Washington State who suffer significant mental health issues, experiencing PTSD at twice the rate of war veterans. God sees the 40% of foster youth who will be arrested for allegedly committing a crime by age 17. God sees those 70% of female foster care alumni in our state who will become pregnant by the age of 21. God sees the over 70% of minors who have been sex trafficked in King County who were in the foster system at some point. God sees them, shouldn't we? We are called as God's people and free Methodists to not only see, but to do something. (laughs) And so our Set Free and Fostering Hope Ministries have been our hopeful response. And today I'm so pleased that Colleen Stark-Bell is going to share with us. She was planning to be with us, but she is going to be able to share with us by video. She is a social worker and the head, one of the leads of our Department of Children, Youth, and Families Adolescent Unit, and I have a wonderful relationship with, with her. Colleen will give us a meaningful glimpse of the realities 
her foster youth, and the impact of our work. Good morning. My name is Colleen Stark-Bell. I'm a social worker with the Extended Foster Care Program. Um, I'm employed by DCYF, and my office is just down the street from your beautiful church on um, Lower Queen Anne. I was asked to come and speak with you this morning by your amazing pastor, Camille. Um, Camille and my unit of extended foster care peers and social workers um, have really built a beautiful partnership um, with your church and with Fostering Hope, um, in large part because of the care and support and advocacy um, and love that you want to show youth who are in extended foster care and, and youth who are in um, regular foster care. I do want to share a little bit about um, the value and importance of the amazing furniture bank that you all have generously opened your hearts and your church um, and your items for these youth. I have the privilege of bringing many of our youth and extended foster care to this amazing furniture bank when they first move into their very own place as young adults. So many of the kids that we work with don't have families who are there for them to help them on moving day to see their new place um, and to really celebrate that milestone of youth development with them. It really is humbling and sacred to be able to be that person who takes them on that journey. And I often see their apartment when they first move in and most of these youth have nothing. They don't have dishes. They don't even have a bed. And being able to work with Camille and your amazing church community and volunteers and bringing these youth and watching the look on their face when they walk in the door and see how fantastic the items are. I always notice there's some hesitation I think they're not sure um, if it's really okay that they can take what they need. Um, but Camille and the volunteers do such a beautiful job in welcoming them, making them feel included and valued. And it's so exciting for me as a social worker to see more of their personality when they pick out items specifically for their home. I know that your church community is not able to see this amazing process, but it's so important for me to let you all know that it is so meaningful and the love and support that you are showing these youth, um, it truly fills their home with love and with support and with recognition that they matter. They matter to our community. They matter to you. One of the common phrases most of these youth share when we finally get everything moved in is that for the first time in years, they feel like they can breathe. They say that they have a new sense of peace, um, of joy, of security. I literally see youth transform on, on moving day. And so I just wanted to thank your community for your ongoing generosity regarding the food bank. You've also done beautiful things um, 
in donating gift cards that we use for youth when they really have a need. Um, you have generous community donors that are working with us to meet larger needs of youth um, that we can't resource in the community, but overcome incredible um, barriers for these youth to continue to move forward. And Camille's also done a beautiful job of helping your church organize, making social workers like me feel valued and important and recognized. Um, so I just want you all to know that the work you're doing is truly making a difference. It is a blessing. And um, when I first started working at King West seven years ago, I would drive down Mercer and I often thought to myself, I wondered if anyone in our community was seeing these children and families. This was before I started working with Camille. And now I know unequivocally that your church community sees these children, these youth, these young adults, and you are walking alongside them um, to help them have everything that they need to truly build a home. Thank you again so much for all the beautiful work you do. and. We are deeply grateful here at DCYF, and so are the extended foster care youth we work with. Thank you. She's an amazing social worker, and it's just another reminder to be praying for our social workers. I mean, you could say a prayer for Colleen this morning. Her mother slipped and fell on the ice and broke her hip, so I told her we would be praying for her today. I'm so grateful for her and her work. So let's fast forward 14 years, and we meet Hagar again in Genesis 21. By this time, Isaac has been born as God kept his promise to Abraham and Sarah in their very old age. Sarah is 90, and Abraham is 100 years old. And Ishmael now is 14 years old. And he was here heard making fun of a toddler Isaac, and uh, Sarah was upset. She demanded that Abraham send that slave woman and her son away. So Abraham complied, but reluctantly and painfully because of his relationship with Ishmael. God brought comfort with the promise that Ishmael would still become a great nation because he was also Abraham's son. Hagar and Ishmael were sent off the next morning with some bread and one flask of water. They had been abandoned and rejected in the desert again. And the water runs out, and Hagar stashes Ishmael under a desert shrub, walking a short distance away because she did not want to watch him die. God hears Ishmael crying. And once again, through his messenger, he calls her by name. Hagar, Hagar, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid is one of the most common phrases throughout scripture. Some form of this phrase shows up 365 times in the Bible. And the first time it's uttered is when God appears to Abraham in a vision and promises God's own presence and protection for Abraham and his household. But the second time that God uses this phrase to someone reassuringly, don't be afraid, is right here with Hagar, this foreign, homeless, single mother in the wilderness, a woman full of fear and fierceness, a woman 
who had escaped one trauma just to find herself face to face with another. A woman full of grace and grit that God worked an incredible promise both in her and through her. This is so compelling and this is so unexpected of God. God provided for their needs by giving so much more than a flask of water. God provided the reassurance of his presence and a well, a whole source of water, another promise of hope for their future. So oftentimes in ministry, it's important to first fulfill a basic need before addressing any other issues. And it starts with a sense of safety. Our foster family support group nights are highly organized, so every family that comes in feels secure before they bring their kids here. Our kids' volunteers have special training in trauma-informed care, and they have background checks. Our warm hospitality helps every parent feel valued in our space. We feed these families delicious home-cooked meals cooked by our very own people here in groups, and they're served with care. And then we eat together in community. And then the kids are dismissed for a fun evening of gym games and crafts. And now finally parents feel comfortable, they're full, and they're ready to participate in facilitated discussions and hear hear from some amazing guest speakers. But then they're able to share stories, and there's tears that are shed, and they're able to grieve together, sometimes some serious losses. And some have shared, I can't imagine being a foster parent without this group. This is the one place where I feel understood. I can truly share all that I deal with. And I don't have people telling me, well, this is what you've signed up for. When statistics reflect that at least 50% of foster parents quit after the first placement, we are providing a meaningful source of strength and support. I know a few folks in our congregation have gone the extra mile taking three young foster adopt boys on fun outings so that their single mom can have some much needed respite and time to herself. A good question to be asking ourselves is, how can we be used by God to be someone's water in the desert? The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, whom we honor this weekend, said, Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are we doing for others? As you heard from Colleen, our home goods, cleaning supplies, and personal care kits open doors for us to share with foster youth and families. You are seen. You are valued. You are loved, both by our faith family, but most importantly, by a God. Who loves you. This is water in the desert. Hagar's story does not end with, and they lived happily ever after. They didn't. They didn't get to go back to the tents and security and people of Abraham and the provision there. They remained in the desert, in the wilderness, but scripture says that God was with Ishmael as he grew. They were not left alone. The Bible speaks to the real world, though, to the ongoing difficulties faced by single mothers, perplexed wives, flawed fathers, to troubled sons. The message is not come to Jesus and you will live happily ever after. The message is my grace is sufficient for you. 
Are you living in tension in a home where there is little peace, living with memories of emotional or physical abandonment and the spiritual wounding you may have experienced? I am saying to you today, Scripture tells you that God sees you. He knows you. Jesus calls you by name, and he hears your affliction, and he loves you deeply. It's, this is the tough love of Jesus. The story of Hagar reminds us that God cares for those who are suffering. He cares for those who have been abandoned or left to fend for themselves. The story reminds me that I should care for them as well as an agent of hope. And here's a little P.S. to the story of Hagar and Ishmael's descendants. Much later, the Ishmaelites came along at just the right time to get Joseph out of a deadly situation with his brothers and bring him to Egypt, where God worked through him to miraculously save his family and much of the world from famine. And also we know that one of the Ishmaelite territories was Moab, And based on where she lived, most likely Ruth had some Ishmaelite heritage. And we know that Ruth is in the lineage of Jesus through her marriage to Boaz. I love the promises of God's redemption and rescue in the wilderness, which reflects the coming of Jesus. And this is found in Isaiah 35. The desert and the dry land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. They will burst into bloom and rejoice with joy and singing. They will see the Lord's glory and the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and support the unsteady knees. Say to those who are panicking, be strong, don't fear. Here's your God coming with vengeance, with divine retribution. God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be cleared. Then the lame will leap with the deer and the tongue of the speeches will sing. Waters will spring up in the desert and streams in the wilderness. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground fountains of water. Will you pray with me? El Roy, God of hope. As we hold the heaviness of painful stories this morning, we are thankful for the pictures of Jesus who comes to redeem all things. Jesus, our good shepherd, who calls us by name, who is our living water that we may never thirst. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray, to overflowing, that we may be your refreshment to those in the wilderness. Oh, El Roy. You see those in pain today. You see those who are homeless and cold. Oh, God, bring warmth and provision. Oh, healer, we pray for your touch on Pastor Craig and Mark Guy and the mother of Colleen Stark-Bell and others that we know. El Roy, our hearts are also heavy for those entrapped in in isolation. We think of the young men and women who are walking the sidewalks of Aurora day and night, the foster youth who age out as teens with no family support. You hear their cries, O God. The foster kids who have been passed from home to home with no sense of permanence. We bring all this pain and trauma to you, 
and we weep with you. Oh God, would you intervene and reveal yourself in powerful ways as you did with Hagar and speak to us, Elroy, about what you would have us to do. We long to be a part of your gracious and redemptive plan. Oh Father, Heavenly Father, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you.